In the afternoon, on the 24th of March 2021, gunmen started to gather on the outskirts of Palma, a coastal town in the northern province of Cabo Delgado in Mozambique, not far from the Tanzanian border and just a few kilometers from Total's $20 billion natural gas project on the Ofungi Peninsula. The gunmen, dressed in black, patiently and methodically positioned themselves around the town, closing off road access. At roughly 4 p.m., the attack began. Pulled from the cabs of their trucks and murdered in cold blood, their bodies left as a signal that a bloody orgy of violence was guaranteed. It was the first indication to rescue teams that the northern Mozambique town of Palma was in the midst of an insurgent rampage. Over a hundred militants stormed the town, shooting, looting, burning and killing, forcing thousands to flee in fear. After just 30 minutes, Palma went dark. Electricity lines were destroyed. Mobile phone connections had been cut. Now, the BBC has been hearing gruesome testimony of abductions and beheadings in Mozambique. An Islamist insurgency in the East African nation has driven more than half a million people from their homes in the past year. But aid agencies say it's a humanitarian crisis that the rest of the world has ignored. Over the past three years, an Islamist insurgency has raged in Cabo Delgado. Palma was not the first attack of this kind. Mosimba de Praia in 2017, villages like Olumbi, Chitolo and Ruea in 2018, Shitashi village and Mosimba de Praia yet again in 2020. The list goes on and on. Some have called this Africa's ignored war or forgotten insurgency. In May last year, Deep Dive, exploring organized crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, brought you a podcast on how the insurgency within Cabo Delgado was impacting the illicit economy of Mozambique. After this brutal attack in Palma, we are revisiting this topic. This is a collaborative episode between Africa and the global illicit economy and Deep Dive, exploring organized crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Lindy Mtongana. Now, they attacked from three sides, from the north, southwest, and the south. And it was a very well-coordinated attack with internal communications. And it, it happened quite quickly. This is Johan Smith, an independent security analyst who's been tracking the insurgency in Cabo Delgado since the beginning. On the 24th of the afternoon, between 3 and 4 o'clock, it started. Now, significant here is that DAG, uh, DAG Advisory Group, the PMC, that was supporting or contracted by the Ministry of the Interior to provide air support to the, the government security forces, their contract came to an end on the 6th of April, and uh, they were busy moving their assets down to Pemba. And the gunships just left the morning of, of the 24th. Then the insurgents had free reign. I was in my room and we got the message by telephone that there was a problem up in Palma. That caught us by surprise because we were actually standing down. We didn't have any bullets for the guns. We had a couple of days to go before our contract ended. This is Colonel Lionel Dyke, 
CEO of the Dyke Advisory Group, or DAG, a private military contractor that was hired by the Mozambican government. And in fact, there wasn't any fuel in Pemba. We ordered the aircraft to get up as fast as they can, stop in a place called Moeda, uh, which is a military base where there was some fuel. They flew there, put in fuel, what there was, and stole some ammunition from the military that was there and flew direct to Palmer. So the people in, in, in the air were the first people to see it. They were my pilots and my gunners. They got overhead, I think at about 9.30 or 10.30 that morning. When they arrived, the DAG pilots said it was total chaos. They saw these people in black pajamas, we call that, running around in groups. They were obviously armed and shooting, and the civilians were running around. It was quite chaotic. When my aircraft got overhead, they engaged the terrorists that were easily identifiable because they had black uniforms on. After engaging them, they quickly disappeared, which is what they do. They run into their houses, they get in amongst the people. And so after the initial couple of times that my helicopters, and we spread out a bit, although we support each other, they engaged these people and stopped that attack. So when we got overhead, the actual raping and pillaging and looting of the town ended. You know, there were lots of dead bodies around. We've, you've seen some pictures of people next to trucks. And we could see bodies beheaded. But the moment we engaged from the air, these people melted away into the houses. But what about the Mozambican security forces? Where were they? Well, the closest of them were inside the Ofungi oil security area, the area they'd been tasked to guard. And while the shooting, looting and beheadings were happening on the streets of Palma, they stayed in the security area. In the chaos, as the militants searched for foreign workers and looted the town, DAG began rescuing people. So the situation was that we could see where people who'd been attacked and shot at in the various rest camps, for example, and also out in the bush. They, they made marks in the ground calling for help. In one case, they put out white stones, you've seen that, uh, and we became conscious of the problem. I, I got this from my people and I said, just suppress the terrorists and then get in and take as many people out as you can to safety. The only safety that we knew of that area was onto the Afungi oil plant owned by um, the French, Total. So the people would lift them out and put them there. We changed our aim, as it were, purely to rescue people while at the same time protecting our own aircraft and the people we were rescuing. So each rescue mission had a aircraft land on the ground. We only had two aircraft that we could use that for, and these are our own search and rescue aircraft. A little aircraft called squirrels, they could take four or five people. So when a squirrel went into an area where we would send them, the gunship would stay overhead to protect them because these people attacked the aircraft when they were on the ground. And all our aircraft on the ground were shot at and hit. And at the same time, our people had to shoot at the guys shooting at them. So not only that, some people that we had trained, the DAG had trained, we trained 120 people in the south of the country uh, up until Christmas. Uh, there were 40 of them up there, and they were released to get out and get into the town. We actually had to land in the fight and give them more ammunition because they ran out of ammunition. So our role became search, rescue, and support role and attack role. It became very, um, uh, very intense. Eventually, the militants melted away, leaving utter destruction behind them and thousands of people displaced. Here's Johan Smith again. It was so well executed that, and it needed a lot of planning. With regard to this, I can confirm that 
Palma was started to be infiltrated from the beginning of December and where safe houses were created and every night arms and ammunition were smuggled into the town. So what happened here, there was this attacks coming in from the outside but also from the inside. And uh, that created a lot, a lot of panic and it was very effective. So in the process, the insurgents stole more than 80 vehicles and every night they were driving out foodstuffs and construction material and whatever they needed. So it was, it was a big victory for the insurgents in this case, which is quite worrying how this is going to play out because there's a new dimension added to the capability of the insurgents and that's mobility. That's something that they didn't have. And they control most of the main routes in the north. So some of those towns, I think, would be targeted during Ramadan. With so much uncertainty surrounding the attack, it has been difficult for the number of deaths to be independently verified. Zenaida Machado is from the African Division of Human Rights Watch. She specializes in Mozambique and is also a former BBC journalist. People return to Palma, they are finding bodies. They found 12 just the other day uh, next to the Amarula Hotel, which authorities claim were people that were beheaded and the authorities then buried those bodies. But locals also find bodies, like the local community leader said he found 25 bodies. Uh, another community leader said he found 58 bodies. But also a point of order that needs to be highlighted all the time and pressed is the fact that it's not our responsibility to come up with numbers. We might come up once we are given access and we go ourselves to do our independent research, but is the Mozambican government responsibility to account for every person that is missing or might have been killed in this conflict? After the attack, as people slowly began to return to the streets of Palma, they were greeted by a scene of utter chaos. People are coming back to a town where they can still find bodies laying down on the streets. So, yes, there's no exchange of fire, but we don't need to be any experts on health to know that it's not a good environment for people to live where you can still smell burnt bodies, the bodies in decomposition. In other words, before people even think about returning to Palma, the government should have made sure that Palma is cleaned up, mm. that the bodies are, all of them are removed from the streets. The area is supplied with food. That has not happened. The Islamic State claimed responsibility for the attack and released a video, only for the video to be shown to be a fake, using images from the attack on Masimba de Praia a year earlier. It's believed that the two groups cut links in 2020. Mozambique hugs the Swahili coast of the African continent. The Indian Ocean and Madagascar to the east, South Africa and Eswatini to the south, Malawi, Zimbabwe and Zambia to the west, and Tanzania to the north. Cabo Delgado, the region where the attack took place, lies in northern Mozambique, a region that has played an important role 
in the illicit trade that flows across East and Southern Africa and beyond. Drugs, ivory, human smuggling and so on travel along these ancient trading routes in every direction. The main illicit flows and, and the highest value illicit flow is really the heroin trade, which comes from Afghanistan, Pakistan, down to mostly to northern Mozambique, but also a little bit south and previously to Tanzania and the Kenyan coast as well. Well, still to the Tanzanian coast. Alistair Nelson is a senior fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. The heroin trade itself was estimated to be worth around six to eight hundred million dollars a year annually with the estimated volumes of heroin that are transiting Mozambique. And the estimate was that about $100 million of that was remaining in Mozambique as bribes and facilitation payments and so on. The three main ways heroin arrives in Mozambique are through container ships from Pakistan, which arrive at the major ports such as Pemba or Maputo. It also arrives by the traditional and distinctive dhows, which travel down from Afghanistan along the Makron coast of Pakistan and down the east coast of Africa before transferring the heroin onto smaller dhows, which are then landed on the beaches. Finally, for local use, the heroin arrives in Tanzania, where it is packaged before being smuggled across the border into northern Mozambique. Some of the GI's recent work has shown that there's actually been a proliferation of methamphetamine production in Afghanistan. And now, since the beginning of 2019, we've seen a very interesting change where these shipments of heroin that are coming on the dows are now more than 50% made up of actually methamphetamine. So I guess we should be calling it heroin and meth shipments. And there's a huge new market and there's been a proliferation of higher quality and slightly cheaper methamphetamines available in South Africa which GI has also shown. There are reports that cocaine is also being brought into Mozambique in containers from Brazil before being shipped south to South Africa, north to Europe and other markets, possibly even east to Australia. Some of the other illicit flows that we see are, in the past there used to be smuggling of migrants, human smuggling from Ethiopia and Somalia down the coast, docking into northern Mozambique, into Cabo de Gado and then coming down on different methods of transport to South Africa. That marine movement of migrants has actually been largely impacted by the insurgency, and, and that seems to have stopped completely. Alongside the smuggling of people and drugs, for the last 20 years, we've also seen the movement of timber. So hardwoods being exported out of, cut down and exported out of northern Mozambique, if we're focused on that. Some of that was initially going to, to South Africa in the early 2000s, but since the sort of 2005 onwards, there's been a, a huge influx of Chinese timber companies exporting timber to China, quite often illegally because it's, it's in whole pieces and, and it's only supposed to be worked timber that's exported. And finally, Mozambique has been synonymous with ivory trafficking. There's been a huge ivory flow from Mozambique between sort of 2009, 10 up until about 2017, tons of ivory moved out of Mozambique. Initially poached in Mozambique, moving over into Tanzania and then out of Tanzania to Asia. And then more latterly, sort of 2014-15, that ivory was moving out of the ports of Mozambique, so Pemba, largely also possibly Nakala. And then it got to the extent where actually ivory from East, Central and East Africa was moving all the way down into Northern Mozambique, and being consolidated there and shipped out of there across to, to Asia.
But that ivory flow has really stopped since about 2017-18. Whether they're drug trafficking networks, Chinese timber companies, or ivory poaching gangs, these flows are controlled by well-established networks who've been operating in the country for decades and are protected by senior members of the Frelimo ruling party. Indeed, the WikiLeaks cables from the U.S. Embassy in Maputo discuss the Frelimo party's involvement in drug trafficking out of Mozambique. The origin of the insurgency in the north goes back further than the first attacks in 2017. It can be traced to numerous instances and historical realities. Cabo Delgado has been systemically ignored by the Mozambican government in Maputo. Communities feel disenfranchised from political elites who seem focused on lining their own pockets. While the elites soaked up the dirty money from drug trafficking, foreign investors jumped into the burgeoning energy sector, all the while ignoring the fact that a heavy-handed approach from the government lit the fuse for a growing insurgency. It started around about 2007 when we saw the emergence of radical mosques. The group became a little bit more radical and outspoken against government. This is Johan Smith, an independent security analyst who has been tracking the insurgency from the very beginning. And government then made the mistake by demolishing the, the, the mosques and not really dealing with the radicalization of some of the young people. This mound of rubble in Mozimbao de Praia, in extreme north of Mozambique, was once a mosque. It was demolished by the government after an attack in October, attributed to a group of young men who are believed to have frequented it. And during that time, a lot of people left for Saudi Arabia to, to go and study further and, and they became a lot more militant on their return. A lot of them went to Sudan and some went to Somalia. As the fuse continued to burn, the government made another mistake. For generations, artisanal mining families had mined for rubies, only for the state to suddenly weigh in and normalize the mining industry. I can remember the first time that I went to Freedom Bridge, you could still in the early 2000s, where you could buy next to the road, you could negotiate buying rubies. Then in 2016, almost overnight, the government decided to clamp down on all these so-called illegal artisanal miners. A lot of them were Mozambican nationals that were living there their whole life, about the 10th generation living there doing that. And uh, they lost their land. Around the same time, Radical Islamists forced out of Tanzania moved into northern Mozambique. Reports also started to circulate that state forces and private military contractors were beating villages and even killing illegal miners. Then, on the 5th of October 2017, the fuse ran out on this powder keg and it exploded when a group of 30 armed men attacked and seized the coastal town of Masimba de Praia. When they started, obviously, they weren't that well-trained, although that first attack was conducted by some experienced fighters because they attacked from three fronts. They knew exactly which targets to go for, and they waited for the reaction force to arrive from Pemba, and then they ambushed them, and then they withdrew. So 
that was a very strong signal that was sent. And then we went through all the phases of guerrilla insurgency, where you had initially you had attacks against government buildings, police posts, medical clinics to get medical supplies and things like that. And from there we went into the terror phase where the most horrific thing, atrocities was committed against the people and they were driven off from their villages and it was kind of a scorched earth policy. And that is where you started seeing the IDPs. And from that, it developed into this total insurgency that we have at, at this point. Locally, they're known as Al-Shabaab, meaning the youth or kids. They have no link or reference to other Al-Shababs. And Yuhan believes that the numbers of insurgents have grown from about 800 to between 3,400 and 3,800. And this will likely grow after the success they had in the recent attack in Palma. But the human cost of these attacks and the psychological trauma on the communities affected are significant and long-lasting. Here's Zenaida Machado from Human Rights Watch again. We have spoken to mothers who have watched their sons being beheaded. We have spoken to parents who don't know about the whereabouts of, of their daughters who were taken by, by the militants. We have spoken to, to children who don't know where their, their parents are. There are a lot of unaccompanied children and many of them have seen all type of atrocities on their way from the attacked areas to, to safety. And the current humanitarian crisis lies not on the foundations of long-term stability, instead on the shaky ground of a country still living with the consequences of its recent history. One shouldn't forget which country are we talking about. This is not a country that was doing well. It's a country still leaving the consequences of a two-decade civil war. It's living in extreme poverty, and Cap Delgado in particular is one of the poorest provinces of Mozambique. So what we are seeing in Mozambique is a crisis on top of another crisis. Diseases and poverty on top of a system that was already very deficient, lacking almost everything. And it's a burden that, in our opinion, the government cannot face alone. And it's urgently to, to, to work together with humanitarian agencies to be able to, to provide the basic, but very basic rights and needs of, uh, of this community fleeing the conflict. Italian energy company Eni signed an $8 billion deal on Thursday to develop a gas field off the coast of Mozambique. The tranquil Bay of Pemba in northern Mozambique is undergoing a rapid transformation. That's since the discovery of a vast offshore gas field between 2010 and 2013, with the potential to transform the country's economy. As well as the signing of a memorandum of understanding between the US and Mozambique. I mean, in short, we could say... The cyclone has come and gone, but the future for Mozambique looks extremely bright. It's often remarked that Cabo Delgado is suffering from the so-called resource curse, a region rich in natural resources, such as natural gas like the Total project near Palma and the huge ruby fields at Montepuege, but struggling to use the proceeds for wider economic development and diversification. As we just heard from Zenaida, 
Cabo Delgado remains one of the poorest provinces in Mozambique. At the Total plant, infrastructure work has been swift. An airstrip for large aircraft, a dock that will take large ships, and soon gas liquefaction trains. Then large walls are built around the construction site, creating a walled city. And because of security issues prior to the attack on Palmer, there is a 25-kilometer security zone around the site. Yet the lack of economic development for the rest of the community is felt acutely by those who live directly alongside these extractive industries. In addition to this, you have major corruption across society, from the contract tender process to everyday kickbacks. It affects every citizen and it eats away at society. Here's Alistair Nelson again. Just look at what's happening in Cabo Delgado right now. We have an insurgency. We have young men have joined an insurgency because they feel that their future was being stolen. You really picked it up there, Lindy, when you said, what's it like for people to see this, all of this corruption at all levels? It's a, it gets really insidious at a lower level where people who are earning small amounts of money, if they want cell phone, if they want their children to go to school, if they want water at their home, whatever it may be, they have to pay a small amount. The bribes might be small, but they mount up when you are earning a tiny amount of money. And eventually people just get so frustrated that they've just had enough. And so people turn to the illicit economy, so be that artisanal mining, which has been frankly made illegal by the state, who basically captured those resources, as I see it, from the local people. And so people turn to these things. They'll turn to timber, selling timber to Chinese companies or or trying to mine illegally in a concession, whatever it may be, because they just can't access. The, the illicit economy just doesn't exist for them. And they struggle so much to make all these small payments. And so young men join groups like Al-Sunawar Jamaa. Indeed, Johan Smith says that if he were a Palmer resident, he would think the discovery of gas was a total curse. I was in Palmer before the gas and after the gas discoveries. And I can tell you it's a total different town situation now where the, where the locals were, I think, some of the happiest in the world. I mean, they were in this beautiful setting. It was a, a sleepy village. And then suddenly it was swamped by the oil companies. Then a fungi started. The whole lifestyle changed. The development of the natural gas industry requires a lot of workers, but what it doesn't guarantee is where those workers come from. Chronic underfunding of state infrastructure, such as schools, means that literacy levels are much lower in Cabo Delgado. And as Johan points out, you can't hire someone who can't read the health and safety pamphlets on site. So what do they do? They come down to Maputo and Matola provinces where the literacy rate is 94%. They recruit people from here, which is, well, 1,800 kilometers away, fly them up there, which are being perceived by the locals as foreigners, and then they get the jobs that there is. So if the people who actually live in Cabo Delgado aren't benefiting from the immense natural resources beneath their feet, who is? Here's Alistair Nelson again. It's only been the, a few elite people who have benefited, both from the gas, from the rubies. It's only been some of these, the families of the generals, the families of some of the elite in Maputo, who have got themselves on the board or who have acquired the concessions where the roads will be built or where the 
the developments in a fungi for the, the gas will be built or, or the concessions where the main ruby finds are just east of Montabuej. So it's really only that elite that has accessed that. For the majority of people, all they see are these upgrades in certain infrastructure, which they can't access, like the airports and etc., done by the private sector. They've seen their land there around Saint Montapuej, where the people live, taken and given as a concession to the elite, who own 25% of what's now so the richest ruby concession in the world, and similarly with the gas. And that's it. That's all that that Cabo de Gado has really seen is is private sector investment benefiting private sector, mostly offshore companies and a few local elite. Fundamentally, at the heart of these issues, the lubricant of organized crime and illicit trade is corruption. I wouldn't be wrong if I said corruption is the only game in town. Big corruption, which is political corruption, administrative corruption, it is rampant. In fact, Mozambique is facing its biggest crisis ever as the consequence of political corruption. This is Professor Adriano Novunga, director of the CDD Mozambique, a civil society organization working on deepening democracy and development and a partner of the Global Initiatives Resilience Fund. If you look at the situation in northern Mozambique, we have a clearly a situation of governance failure due to corruption, which has reduced the state capacity to not only deliver development for the people, but it has alienated the people's right to development, particularly the young people, in a larger context where extractivism by the elite has negated the development for the Cabo Delgado people and the young people particularly, but it has also enabled organized crime, particularly drug trafficking, to flourish and to intersect and to some extent capture certain sectors of the state machinery. So, in a nutshell, what we see in northern Cabo Delgado is also a result of governance failure and particularly of corruption. The failures of the political and military class are clear to see. The corrupt practices, the neglect, the hoarding of wealth, the forced displacement of communities and so on. With that being said, it is hardly surprising that the government has lacked a coordinated response to the insurgency. Mozambique has what it is called the Joint Response Team. The army under the Defense Ministry and the police under the Interior Ministry. But it has created coordination challenges. For instance, the private military groups, they were contracted under the Ministry of Interior with less participation from the Defense Ministry. And this has indeed created some challenges. As you've just heard from Professor Novunga, the insurgency led the Mozambican government to turn to private military contractors. First, a firm from Russia called the Wagner Group, who left after just a few months. And then they turned to Dyke Advisory Group, who have been battling the insurgents since 2019. 
The use of private military contractors has been controversial. The security concerns of major multinationals like Total puts pressure on the Mozambican government to find a solution, and they frequently turn to foreign fighters. Amnesty International released a report which claimed DAG operatives fired machine guns from helicopters, dropped hand grenades indiscriminately into crowds and fired at civilian infrastructure, including hospitals, schools and homes. A claim strongly refuted by Colonel Lionel Dyke, the CEO of DAG. Can I tell you, we totally refute that and leave it at that. I've got a legal team on the ground. They've just left, in fact, a lawyer an advocate, a senior British policeman, and a police lady who've had a lot of experience of dealing with investigations like this. They've been tasked by me to go in there and tell it warts and all. Uh, we've got records of every single attack we ever did is recorded in detail with a GPS position, date and time, and who is there. We fly with a Mozambican senior officer, normally a general, including now in Palmer, the, the police had people on our airplanes with us we fly with them and they give authority for us to shoot. We, we don't indiscriminately shoot. You know, I, I think, I, I can't understand the reasoning for that um, desktop study that was put out and it done us an awful lot of harm. And, and, but it hasn't done us any harm in terms of the people we saved. We've got nothing but good to say about the guys there. That's, that's all I'm going to say at this time. We've got this inquiry which we've done which will make, be made public by our lawyers shortly and I, I believe we'll be well vindicated we don't do what they say they do but we are fighting a war that's the other other thing this this is a war and there's no ways you can love a person to death in a war the palmer attack came just as dyke advisory group's contract was coming to an end Indeed, DAG warned the Mozambican government that their exit would create a security vacuum so for colonel lionel dyke this attack was no surprise. We predicted it. We knew, you know, there's two seasons in, an, in, a, in a situation like this. is the rainy season where very little happens, but people like us that fly can go anywhere. As long as we, that's, we've got visibility, we can go. We're not tied to the roads. And then when the rain stopped, you get the fighting season. We predicted to Mozambican government that the fighting season was about to start now, right now. And Blow me down, yes, at the start of the fighting season, we said they're going to take Palmer because there were indications that they would, and they did. So you know, it was fully predictable that, that this could happen. The decision to ignore the warnings has cost Mozambique economically. More importantly, it's meant that a significant number of lives have been lost and thousands of people displaced. With the huge investment from the multinational energy corporations, in addition to local political backing from within the Frelimo political party and military, you would expect increased security in Cabo Delgado, both state and private military contractors, to protect those interests. So how does that increased security impact the illicit markets that operate in the region? Here's Alistair Nelson again. I think there was probably some concern that whether the security around the, the gas companies and so on would actually have a negative impact on the heroin trafficking from the traffickers' perspective. And certainly, you know, one or two of the traffickers that we were sort of tapped into in our research over the, over the years, we know that they've sort of been actually been interested in, in what's going on in, in the gas sites to some extent because they launder some of their money through logistics companies and filling stations and bringing in diesel and petrol, etc. So there was a bit of an opportunity for them. 
So initially, maybe just looking at it with slightly warily. And what about the global mining companies and the huge ruby deposits? Certainly the rubies presented a, an opportunity, but we didn't really see a lot of the local, the people involved in local illicit economies actually tap into that. We've actually seen a lot of outsiders move into Mozambique and basically tap into that illicit ruby trade. So people from Thailand, from Myanmar, a lot of people from West Africa have flocked into Montepuege and the areas where the rubies are found just east of Montepuege and also to Nampula further south and are buying rubies and, and smuggling them out of the country through quite sophisticated corruption systems at both Pemba Airport and at Nampula Airport and also out to Malawi. There's a lot of Malawian gems traders have moved in as well. So again, it's another place where even in that part of the illicit economy, where we've seen Mozambicans have basically been excluded from that illicit economy except as miners. When the insurgents attacked and occupied Mosimbo de Praia last year, an assumption was made that the insurgents would tap into or at least influence the illicit markets within Cabo Delgado to help finance the operations, controlling the movement of drugs or how rubies are smuggled from the country, or even the smuggling of migrants, controlled and facilitated largely by groups in Zanzibar, Tanzania. So we were very, very interested in whether they would start tapping into that. We went back in January, February this year to try and gather as much information on that as we could. And basically, we found, to the best of our ability, the best we could in looking at what's going on in that area, we found that there is no connection between the insurgents and any of the illicit economies. Criminal networks are forever agile and adaptable. The trouble in the north has not had a significant impact on the illicit goods moving through the country. These networks have just changed their routes to minimize disruption and to avoid the danger associated with the insurgency. But there are knock-on effects from the violence experienced by those displaced since this insurgency began in 2017. Here's Naida Machado from Human Rights Watch again. The conflict began in October 2017, and this year, in October, we'll be marking year number four since the conflict started. And in this period of time, we are talking about over 700,000 people displaced. And mind you, just weeks ago, we were discussing about half a million people displaced. Now we are moving towards a million people, and very quickly. Each attack that this group stages in one village, is, in one village ends up taking 20 to 30,000 people to displacement. We are talking about over 2,000 people dead. A lot of them killed through beheadings. We are talking about a huge burden on the health system in Bemba, which is the capital of Kapdelgad. Pemba's stadium is packed full of displaced families. Many arrived by boat from Parma, even though soldiers had seized the town back from insurgents. Rumours of further extremist attacks led more people to flee in panic. 
because Pemba, as we speak right now, is accommodating double the population that it used to. So there's no enough food. There's no enough medical assistance. Those who managed to escape the attack can be caught by the militants, then sexually assaulted and executed in front of their families, or even met by the security forces who accuse them of collaboration and then commit their own abuses. The scale of fear is unimaginable. Though the international community has only just taken notice, the attack on Palma is one of many to have plagued Cabo Delgado over the past few years. This ignored insurgency may have only just entered the global consciousness, but it is an ongoing issue. Here's Colonel Lionel Dyke. I think that the terrorists have moved off. They've stolen a lot of cars, they've stolen a lot of equipment, and they've moved back into the bush. Um, it was never their aim, I believe, to capture the oil fields, because what they're going to do with the oil. I think they achieved a huge success in driving the people that own the oil fields away. They created a huge international advertising that day there, because for the first time ever, everybody started jumping around and saying, there's a real problem there. The problem that we had predicted ages ago. And it took this attack and lots of dead people, I'm afraid. You know, there were bodies floating in the bay without heads. It was actually quite awful. Indeed, the international community needs to wake up to the growing crisis in the country. Zenaida Machado. We are calling on SADC to lay down clear plan how to address this conflict humanitarianly. This conflict might take time to end, but the, the main issue is that for as long as it lasts, there are people that will be suffering. And what is the plan to minimize the suffering of the locals? Those powerful politicians that hoarded wealth at the expense of fellow citizens have a lot to answer for. Consistent mistakes, heavy-handed attitudes and endemic corruption have created an environment where a violent insurgency was given space to grow. Johann Smith it is also ironic now that the retaking or recapturing of Palma has been held as such a victory, but it should never have happened. I mean, it's, it's one of the biggest setbacks in this country's history because uh, where everyone was hoping for this LNG bonanza, that Mozambique would be a real player, everything has been postponed now. And it caused Total to totally withdraw and suspend all activities. Internationally, this has caused significant damage to the reputation of Mozambique. Total have temporarily suspended operations until they can get security guarantees from the government. What does it mean for the future of this project? Here's Professor Adriano Novonga again. Well, uh, I'm sure that they will listen to this interview. Total, since the time that they farmed in, I mean, they bought that concession, they are part of the social fabric and nation building of Mozambique. No doubt about that. And they, they have left, and rightly so, in response to their internal security procedures. But uh, they have to come back, and soon, because it is with Total that Mozambique has to address the security problem from a humanitarian and a socioeconomic development perspective to allow trust building to allow social license, not only for Total, but for international and domestic private sector to operate. So 
as part of our dialogue in our platform on business security and human rights, we are also engaging Total on two grounds. One is for Total not to be too extreme in their demands vis-a-vis -vis the Mozambique government, but also is Total to uh, back off from a militaristic perspective. They have to look at that situation as a lack of trust, as needing dialogue and governance. Since the attack and suspension of work, it was reported by Bloomberg News that small and medium-sized local enterprises have already lost $90 million. The delay to the start of gas production has also seen the IMF severely reduce the forecast for economic growth for Mozambique to just 2.1% from 38% that it projected in January 2016. Then, on the 26th of April 2021, just one month after the attack, Total released this statement. Considering the evolution of the security situation in the north of the Cabo Delgado province in Mozambique, Total confirms the withdrawal of all Mozambique LNG project personnel from the Afungi site. This situation leads Total, as operator of Mozambique LNG project, to declare force majeure. Total expresses its solidarity with the government and people of Mozambique and wishes that the actions carried out by the government of Mozambique and its regional and international partners will enable the restoration of security and stability in Cabo Delgado province in a sustained manner. Force majeure is a provision that allows parties to suspend or end contracts because of events that are beyond their control, such as wars or natural disasters. A spokesman for the company told Reuters that this was the only way to best protect the project interests until work can resume. Serious uncertainty now swirls around the future of this multi-billion dollar project, causing significant damage to jobs and revenue from gas sales. The Palma attack officially ended after eight days, with security forces regaining control of the town. But with the insurgents riding a wave of confidence, another attack is possible, if not imminent. Mozambique's response for now will be purely militaristic. Already, regional and international allies are offering training, ammunition and ground support. But for long-term peace and stability, the country will have to look beyond the boots on the ground, as Professor Adriano Novunga suggests. So from a governance perspective, we have to address those problems that put the young people, girls and women in the situation of vulnerability so that they can exercise their agency in terms of participating and therefore reducing the root causes from a local perspective of this problem. So it is important that that component is addressed thorough and urgently, while at the same time militarization is taking place for military stability and more larger-scale socioeconomic initiatives are being put in place. Here's Alistair Nelson. I think that stamping out the illicit economy right now, much as I think that's a great thing to do, won't necessarily weaken the insurgency itself directly. I think, however, what it may do is provide a very strong signal to the people of the North that the government is taking governance seriously and their economic development and the associated issues seriously. 
and is trying to stamp down on the corruption and governance issues associated with the illicit economy. That signal, I think, is, is critical right now. But I think it's only one step in a, in a much broader series of steps which has to involve stamping out the illicit economy, providing opportunity to people, working on de-radicalization systems, and also providing security to people because there are now a lot of very militarized, radicalized people in that area who have committed some terrible, terrible crimes and atrocities. And security in that area is going to be tough for a long time. And that's a key thing to get right, as well as all of the rest. Economic marginalization, poor governance, corruption and organized crime have collectively fueled an insurgency that shows no signs of letting up. Death and displacement may well continue. It is a crisis Mozambique can ill afford and one that the world, in good conscience, can no longer ignore. That's it for this special podcast on Mozambique. A special thank you to Professor Adriano Novunga, Zenaida Machado, Johan Smith, Colonel Lionel Dyke and Alistair Nelson. All the reading and source material related to this episode can be found in the summary to the show, including the latest Civil Society Observatory of Illicit Economies in Eastern and Southern Africa Risk Bulletin. For more information on the Global Initiative's research, head over to the website globalinitiative.net. You can also find all the GI's other podcasts. You've been listening to the first collaboration between Africa and the global illicit economy and Deep Dive, exploring organized crime from the Global Initiative against transnational organized crime. I'm Lindy Mtongana. Thanks for listening.